Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Welcome to another episode of Unanswered Questions, and today uh, we're welcoming back uh, Dr. Zach Cole. He's a lecturer in biblical studies at Union Theological College in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, so we're glad to have you back, Zach. Thanks. Good to be here. And so today we're, uh, again, tackling um, a question that uh, is dealing with uh, Scripture. Um, and uh, the question that was sent in is, uh, it's a simple question, but it does not have a simple answer. Uh, it's something that uh, we've all struggled with as Christians at one time or another. The question is, how do we prove the inerrancy of Scripture? So uh, let's unpack that a little bit, Zach. Thanks, Justin. Um, yeah, so this question comes up quite a bit, and I think part of the difficulty in answering a question like that is that inerrancy is kind of a vague term. Sure. And we're not always clear about what we're talking about here. And so I, I think that if this is in the context of, you know, you're talking to a friend, you're talking to a coworker, you're talking to someone that is either skeptical or questioning or something like that, I would probably not just begin by trying to prove the inerrancy of Scripture for a variety of reasons. But one is that I just don't think you can prove the inerrancy of scripture in the way that people want it to be proved. Hmm. What, so what, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean that you can't really prove um, inerrancy in the way that you would kind of like prove a mathematical or scientific hmm. formula. It's not that kind of thing. Um, I, I think it can be arrived at uh, through uh, evidence and reasoning and, and things like that. But um, it's much easier to talk about inerrancy once you already have a context to understand it in. So I think it, if I may, I'd probably redirect the question slightly and then hopefully get to inerrancy near, near the end. But the, the way that I would go about kind of engaging with somebody about, you know, the topic of inerrancy is to begin just simply by talking about the overall trustworthiness of the Bible. Hmm. Is it, reliable? Is it trustworthy in any kind of coherent sense? And so when that's the topic of discussion, it's a lot easier to have a constructive dialogue with somebody because now we can actually have something tangible to discuss. And so I think the easiest way for me to talk about this, if I, if I may, would just simply sure. be to kind of approach the issue kind of detailing how I have come to understand that the Bible is reliable, that it is trustworthy. And so the way that I have come to understand the Bible uh, is trustworthy is kind of with three main steps. And the first step was really simply considering the big picture, the big picture of the Bible's reliability. And I, I simply mean by that, um, that 
the most striking thing to me about the Bible is that it takes place, like the vast majority of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, takes place in this world. Like it contains verifiable information about history and events and people and places and things that we know of from other historical sources. Yeah, that's a great point. The Bible... The Bible takes place in the real world, not some like fairy tale land or, you know, it, it doesn't take place in Hades, like in like or Greek Mars or mytho- mythology or Mars, or it doesn't take place like in Valhalla, like you've got some, you know, <laughs> right. like Norse mythology. It takes place in, in, in a uh, context that we know of and we can go and, and like look at stuff that was in the Bible. Like, so we can, we can actually inhabit the place that the Bible talks about almost from beginning to end. Yeah. So like biblical characters, like really familiar biblical characters, like you know, these names like King Nebuchadnezzar, King Sennacherib, Xerxes, Roman emperors, like Caesar Augustus, uh, Roman officials, Pontius Pilate, uh, Gallio, all these guys, they're real people. Like, and we know them from other Mm -hmm historical texts. And so um, in a really fascinating way, the Bible is interwoven into the real world. Uh, So like it talks about places that are real, like Rome and Antioch and Jerusalem and even tiny little specks on the map, like Bethany and Bethsaida. It talks about Malta and Cyprus and Asia Minor and talks about mountains and bodies of water that you can go and look at today. Yeah, I've been, so, to, I've been to Malta. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, just like the Apostle Paul. And so, um, like, the striking thing is that the Bible opens itself up to historical and geographical scrutiny in a way that other texts just don't. You know, this, oh, this or that happened before time began. Well, how are we ever going to investigate that? But the Bible, most of it isn't like that most of the Bible talks about real people that we can verify with 100% certainty that they not only existed, but they did the things that are mentioned in the Bible. Now that's not true for every character in the Bible, obviously, but it's true for a lot of them. And it's also true for lots of the places that are mentioned in the Bible. Um, And so since the Bible is written this way, kind of the big picture shows me that it's possible to fact check to a really great extent. And the amazing thing is that when you actually do some fact checking, you realize that the Bible is incredibly realistic and hmm. plausible and where we can test things and check things for accuracy in terms of language and people and events and places and things. Names of the, the specific times. and Yeah, like when we, when we can check those things, the Bible is surprisingly, perhaps, reliable. Hmm. So at a minimum, we can, we can count on it as a historical document, even if spiritual aspects aside or faith-based aspects aside, we can, we can at least count on the historicity of, of the scriptures. Yeah, so like, we're not at the point, we're just at step one, right? So we're not making the right. point that ev- every detail in scripture is is correct, right? Like, 
hopefully we'll end up there. But all we're doing right now is making a, a basic observation that that the Bible presents a plausible story, both Old Testament and New Testament. They are surprisingly plausible, and as a matter of fact, because it's easy to dismiss the Bible. It's like, oh, that's like fairy tale stuff. Be like, wait, 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 wait a minute. We're talking about real people that's, that are corroborated by external historical sources. So, you know, for example, there's this uh, thing called the Edict of Claudius. So Claudius was a Roman emperor, um, and the Edict of Claudius is this um, law passed, you know, roughly around, you know, the mid-50s AD, about 54 AD. And this is something mentioned in the book of Acts, um, Acts chapter 18. Um, and the, the author of Acts, Luke, says that um, these two characters, Priscilla and Aquila, had left Rome uh, because they lived in Rome, but the Edict of Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. Hmm. So that's why, that's why they were over, you know, outside of Rome, because Priscilla and Aquila were kicked out by the Edict of Claudius. And now, like, you might be inclined to think, oh, wow, you know, what a, you know, a fanciful idea. But <laughs> lo and behold... <laughs> We know from not one but two uh, historical sources outside of the Bible by Roman historians that talk about exactly that same thing. Uh, the, Ro- the Roman historian Suetonius talks about uh, who he's writing in the very early second century uh, in his life of Claudius mentions the Edict of Claudius and says, you know, uh, there was you know uprisings in Rome and the Jews were too hard to handle and they were you know fighting with one another. <laughs> Uh, and so Claudius expelled them from Rome. And so, uh, wow, you know, there's one one specific place where there is, you know, where we can verify that this is not some fairy tale story. <laughs> this really happened. And uh, right. not one, but two historical sources corroborate that. And there are hundreds of examples like this. And, and so, uh, you know, we find that so many people... Um, are willing to believe in other historical documents or other other books written mm. at the time, um, but but not the Bible. Uh, is that something that you come across a lot as well uh, in your studies uh, in this area? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So, like, find someone on the street and ask them if they think what we know about Alexander the Great is reasonably reliable. Not that every single detail is you know, perfectly true, but that we have a pretty good idea of the broad outline of Alexander the Great and his career, um, you know, takes place in the, the you know, fourth century BC. Well, most people are going to say, yeah, we've, we've got a good idea what, you know, it's a plausible account of Alexander the Great. Well, the amazing thing about Alexander the Great is how many historical accounts do we have from his lifetime? Zero. Wow. And how, how many historical accounts do we have of Alexander the Great from a hundred years of his death? Zero. Two hundred years after his death? Zero. We don't have any historical accounts written within living memory of Alexander the Great until roughly about 300 years after he died. And then we get one historical account. And then a hundred years go by and we get a few more, right? So we're talking hundreds of years have elapsed. 
And no one is walking around suspicious that, you know, they've been lied to about Alexander the Great. Now compare that to what we have with Jesus. We have within just a few decades, not one or two or three, but four historical accounts uh, written about his career that date with just a couple of decades. Like in terms of comparing what we know about people in history. Um, so the, it's very near the to form, the origin. of. Oh man. It, that like from the perspective of a historian, that's pure gold. Is right? that, that's is that pure stuff gold. like Josephus and stuff like that? What about Josephus? Are, are those, is that one of the, the documents that you get? That's that's near the no, no, I'm, talk, that I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, I see. I'm saying you got four historical accounts of Jesus written within uh, just a few decades. Then you get more uh, just a few decades after that when you get kind of apocryphal, non-canonical gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and stuff. But they are a lot less reliable in terms of the history. So even if you're not willing to grant every detail in the four Gospels, simply by comparison with other historical characters like Alexander the Great, you have to give them pride of place in, in, in the sense that they give you very, very up-close and personal accounts of this guy, Jesus. That's a great point. Yeah. So, like, we could go on and on about you know, like how the Bible and the Gospels in particular give us lots of not just detailed, but accurate information about archaeology and history and things like that. We could go on and on. Like, it's probably not worth detailing all of that. But if you are interested in that, there are a number of, there's lots and lots of books out there that you can kind of get basically catalogs of historical uh, artifacts or inscriptions or other books from history that corroborate what we know of the Old and New Testament. There's a couple of books I would recommend. One on the Old Testament is uh, written by a guy named Kenneth Kitchen. Kenneth Kitchen, and he wrote On the Reliability of the Old Testament. Really big, thick book. It's easy to read, but it's thick because there's so much historical data that corroborates the reliability of the old Testament. Mm. Then for the new, for the new Testament, I would suggest a, actually quite a brief book. Um, it's re, uh, written quite recently by Peter Williams called, can we trust the gospels published by Crossway? Maybe just a couple of years ago. It's a great really, title. really good. Cause he, yeah. 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 Um, and he does lots of really interesting stuff to show that, you know, when it comes to historical details, the gospel writers in particular, they knew their stuff. Like they know the right language. They know the right geography. They know the right names of people. They know down to like the right coins. Like here's another really <laughs> random example, but I, I just love it. So, so there's a story in Mark chapter 12 and it's in the other uh, synoptic gospels, that's Matthew and Luke, um, where uh, Jesus's opponents, they bring him a denarius. They bring him right. coin and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, what just flows right by you and you, have, you didn't even catch it. But what's remarkable is that that's a tiny historical detail 
that's actually precisely correct that the Roman Empire did require uh, a tax to be paid to Caesar, hmm. and it was paid in the uh, the um, denomination of a silver denarius. Oh, now that's amazing. You might you might think, oh yeah, like whatever, who cares? Well, I mentioned earlier the Gospel of Thomas, which was written in the early second century, so kind of in the 100s, and it's not written by the disciple Thomas. It's kind of written much later from a distance. They have a similar story in the Gospel of Thomas where they bring Jesus a coin, and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? But apparently enough time has elapsed, and they get it wrong, and they say they give Jesus a gold coin and ask him, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, you know, if you don't have the historical context, that means nothing to you sure. until you realize that the Romans didn't require a tax with a golden coin. And so whoever's writing that in the second century clearly is unaware <laughs> that <laughs> what a denarius is and the difference between a silver coin. They should, a have, le- they should have left that part out. And a gold. They should have just should have, left that detail out. should have just said out. taxes. Yeah. It should have just said taxes. <laughs> should have just said a coin even. Whoops. And they would have they would have gotten away kind of without the suspicion that this whoever's writing this clearly doesn't understand the actual granular level of detail of what it was like to live in the time and place that it's supposedly describing. Hmm. That's a great example. So that's just my first step. And my first step, as I personally was approaching the topic, I realized that wherever the Bible is testable, wherever there is kind of outside material or archaeological evidence, we are continually astounded to find that the big picture of the Bible is actually really plausible. It's woven into history in a way that it it opens itself up to scrutiny. And when it does open itself up to scrutiny, Hmm. um, it talks about real people and real places doing real things, not some otherworldly place that we can't actually verify, it's really, really plausible. And most people have no idea that that's the case. So it doesn't shy uh, away. Means- it doesn't shy away from uh, and, and make these like general sweeping argument or uh, statements or something. It doesn't shy away from the details because it's, it's not afraid to, to, to state them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like, that's one thing that people kind of forget. Like the Bible is, an easy target for all of the reasons I've just said, like it claims to narrate history from the ancient near East in multiple countries and multiple languages, multiple cities and places and historical contexts and events from the ancient near East all the way up into late antiquity into the end of around about the first century. That is opening yourself up to a lot of scrutiny. Hmm. And the amazing thing is that, you know, thousands of years have gone by and no one has produced any kind of slam dunk piece of evidence to say that this is all fake. This is all made up. Quite the contrary. The longer we dig in Israel and dig up, you know, structures and things, the more plausibility we actually see. I mean, I was reading recently, it was just last year about a scholar who uh, has plausibly found the site of ancient Sodom hmm. uh, from the book of Genesis. Now, like, did he actually find Sodom? I don't know. Like, it's completely possible. But the very fact that he could have 
is astounding. Like he found right. tons of stuff that corroborates that, that really fits with the narrative. And it really could be Sodom might not be, but it doesn't really matter. The fact that he found something that could be <laughs> right, is, right. is just astounding. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's amazing. So that's the first step. The second step that I have to take after that, and after you get this kind of big picture plausibility, we're not at inerrancy yet. We're not at perfect logical consistency yet. We're not there yet. We're hope, hopefully we'll get there. But the next step is to consider Jesus and to consider Jesus himself. Because if, as I said earlier, we have a pretty good account of Jesus, we've got a pretty good idea, it's as good, if not better, than what we know of Alexander the Great, then we need to take a close look at what's recorded and what's attributed to him in the Gospels. And when we do that, something really troubling happens, (laughs) and that's that what we find is that Jesus himself, no matter which way we want to look at this, Jesus himself obviously, clearly, had a very high view of Scripture. And so what I mean by that is that when Jesus taught, he routinely appealed to the Old Testament. Do you have have some examples of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, Jesus says stuff like in John chapter 10, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. (laughs) He says, he says in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I tell you that not one letter or stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. He's talking about little tiny you know, like dots of the eyes and the strokes of the T are not going to fall away from the law until everything is accomplished. Hmm. He says in Luke chapter 24, he's walking with the uh, disciples on the road uh, to Emmaus, and then he meets his, the rest of the disciples later, and he says, don't you know that it's necessary that all the things written about me in the law, the prophets, and the writings must be fulfilled? And so he's got this obvious, very high view of Scripture. And then he'll even refer to Adam and Eve. He'll refer to Jonah. Hmm. He'll refer to Moses. He'll refer to Abraham. And when he does, um, he refers to them as if they were historical and reliable and that the Old Testament records clearly and accurately and reliably about those figures. So he's not a really good book on. He's not changing. He's not changing. uh, He's not, you know, changing the text or something like that. He's he's depending on it. For his arguments. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like Matthew chapter 19, they asked Jesus about divorce and he says, yes, it, it is true that Moses gave you a law to, that would allow you to divorce somebody, but this was because of the hardness of your heart, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. Hmm. What does he mean? And he goes back <laughs> to Genesis chapter two and he says in the beginning, he made them male and female. And, uh, um, uh, and so he basically says, <laughs> um, because of the, this historical uh, precedent of creation of Adam and Eve, um, um, let no one separate uh, those who have been joined. So he said, don't, you know, he looks back to Adam and Eve, not to reinterpret them or to change them or to, or to even use them as some sort of parable. He grounds his teaching 
on that Old Testament truth, mm. which is just fascinating. You know, it's just absolutely amazing. There's a really good book um, by a scholar named John Wenham called Christ and the Bible. And his name, it's one of those, you know, British names where it's W-E-N-H-A-M, but it's pronounced Wenham, John Wenham, Christ and the Bible. And he just kind of gets into that detail of, you know, what did Jesus think about the Old Testament? Because here's a really troubling question, right? If Jesus had a high view of scripture and Jesus believes it's true and he bases his ministry on it, he bases his teaching on its truth and he builds on it and he says he's coming to fulfill it. Am I in a position, knowing what I know, am I in a position to say that I know more about Jesus than the Old Testament? Hmm. That's a great point. And that's a tough question to ask yourself because you, on the one hand, feel like, oh, I know so much about science and I know so much about history and I know so much about, you know, the heliocentric universe. Don't I know more than ancient people? Hmm. But at the same time, am I bold enough? Am I uh, smart enough to say, you know what? Jesus was wrong. Uh, you know, he was a great teacher. He was, you know, good at this or that, but I know more than he did about the Old Testament. No, I am not willing to go there. <laughs> I'm absolutely not <laughs> we'll, going to go there. We'll let someone else go there. The, I'll let somebody else go there. And um, it, it's actually kind of difficult to go there because even kind of in the wider world, like even if people aren't really so big on the church, um, most people have a pretty good respect for Jesus. And there, it's easy to see that Jesus was not gullible. Like he was not some simpleton. Jesus would school people in interpreting the Old Testament. Like every opponent, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, teachers of the law, they come to him with these like conundrums. You know, they come to him with these like, you know, these great paradoxes and uh, they think they're going to stump Jesus. And every single time he shuts them up. You know, he, he just schools them in understanding the meaning of scripture, uh, the teaching of scripture, how to understand, how to apply it. Uh, Jesus is like an all-star teacher and interpreter <laughs> of scripture. And I, I'm obviously putting that, that's like an understatement, right? Right. Um, but from the perspective of even someone who may not be big on the church or something like that, it's easy to see Jesus was not gullible. Jesus was r right at the very, very top in terms of interpreting scripture. And so therefore you're in a tight spot now because Jesus has this very, very high view of the old Testament. Am I willing to say I know more than he did? And I think it's quite foolish to, to say that. I think it's quite abundantly clear that he's our teacher. He needs to show me how to read the Bible. I don't need to show him. And so that's that second step, right? The first step is, the text is reasonably plausible and believable. But once I see now what Jesus thinks, now that's really getting personal. That's really getting convicting because mm. now, now I have to make a decision. Am I going to claim to know more than he did? Or am I willing to accept that he knew what he was talking about? So you kind of have the, the big picture and then you have Jesus and his uh, authority that he's giving to to the scriptures and then what's the 
what's the third and kind of final point in your mind that you that you go to when you think of how do we prove the inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah, so for my own kind of approach, my own journey, it kind of went in that direction. Like, I will say that, like, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew sure. up believing in a high view of Scripture, but I nevertheless had to wrestle with it on my own. And when I did, this is kind of the process I went through because I had I began to study the Bible academically as an academic discipline when I was in college. And so from that point on, I've been trying trying to wrestle in my own mind, how do I go about this? And so those are the first two kind of steps that I went through looking back. The third one now is we are now kind of in a position that we have a much better context to appreciate the details, right? So now we can kind of, we've got a big picture, we've got Jesus. Now we can kind of look at the actual fine grain details of what appear to be uh, problems, you know, like differences between the gospel accounts or, you know, miracles or apparent contradictions or irreconcilable things or logical problems or things like, or scientific issues, you know, mm. I'm in a, I'm in a much safer place now. I'm in a much, much better place. I'm, I'm not going to have a good foundation. Aside. Maybe. Yeah. I've got a foundation. I'm a bit more informed now than I would have been. I can't sweep it all off the table and say it's all fairy tales. I'm in a much better position now to take the Bible seriously, not necessarily to accept everything it says. I'm still not quite there, but now I'm in a much better, better position to appreciate it. So this third step would be to lean into the details. Now let's engage like directly and say, knowing what I know now, is it really a problem that we have four gospels and they say different things? Is it really a problem that the old Testament talks about, you know, dead people coming to life or, uh, you know, miracles happening, stuff like that is, are those really serious problems? And then, and then how do you, you, you pose that question maybe to yourself or, or someone else is, you know, posing it and, and eventually you have to ask yourself those, those questions. Where, where do you, where do you go with those? Are there yeah, resources so just, or, or, or just a, a logical way to think about it or, or. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of resources out there. The problem is if you just Google it, it you're not going to get helpful stuff. You're just going to get lots and lots of, ignorance kind of multiplied by more ignorance. Yeah, we've so all, we've all been there with Google. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's, that's, that's the trouble with uh, the internet these days. But um, I mean, like just to stick with Jesus for a bit. So you've got four different gospels and people are very, very quick to say, well, the gospels contradict one another. Mm-hmm. How, like, why would you, you know? Uh, okay. Well, let's, let's pick that up. So um, is it actually true that they do? Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by contradict, right? So, like, do the Gospels actually logically contradict one another, or are they simply written from different perspectives, giving you different information in a different order? What, you know, what, what, where do you cross the line between a contradiction and so you're, a so you're kind of starting, vice versa? Starting with the Gospels, being fair to them, you know, asking some questions as opposed to just you know, throwing it out because they seem contradictory. Exactly, exactly. So, for example, like how many women went to the tomb on Easter morning, right? This is a kind of like, you know, a, a common thing to point out, like the, the resurrection account of Easter morning across the four Gospels 
there are differences. And, you know, it's patently clear that there are differences. So Mark's gospel says there were several women. He mentions Mary Magdalene. He mentions another Mary, Mary, mother of James, and a woman named Salome, right? Now, John's gospel, uh, in his account of the resurrection, uh, an Easter morning, just tells us about Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. Now, why didn't he mention the other Mary and Salome? Is this a contradiction? And lots of people are like, yeah, that's a contradiction. And I want to say, wait a minute. Well, we could simply appreciate the fact that the gospel writers were perfectly within their rights to focus on one character for their own narrative purposes right? uh, in some cases, and in other cases to include others. And besides, like when you actually read John's narrative, it obviously doesn't deny that the other women were with Mary. It just focuses on her. And so immediately after she goes to the tomb, uh, what's interesting is that she goes and tells Simon and the other disciples, and she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. We. Yeah, like, so who's the we? Like, John's only told us about Mary Magdalene. And well, it just seems clear that she's referring to the others that were with her, even though John never explicitly brought them into light, he's focusing on her experience. Hmm. And I see absolutely no good reason to either call that an error or a contradiction. That's just how we recount events. That's just how we tell uh, narrative. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it's convenient, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a, if you're looking for a, something that's not, you know, uh, matching, uh, that would be a convenient way to kind of pull something out of context and not look at the, the purposes of John. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you could say something that's accurate about that difference and make it sound really sinister. So you could say like Mark and John don't even agree about how many women went to the tomb. <laughs> right. right. Like, so like that's true, right? Like on the surface, but, In a sense, yeah. but let's get below the surface. Right. Um, so what, what, what really boggles my mind is that we are unwilling to see how much is shared between them when mm. we focus on those minor differences. Like, so both gospels agree that Jesus existed. Both gospels agree that Jesus died. Both Gospels agree that Jesus died by crucifixion. Both Gospels agree that Jesus died by crucifixion on Friday. The big they points. both agree that he rose again on Easter morning. They both agree that Mary... Like, so we're just like totting up all these like similarities of shared affirmation of what the Gospels are telling us, and then we're going to quibble about, well, John didn't explicitly mention the other two women, so this must never <laughs> have happened. Like... What are you talking about? That changes like, the perspective just, on that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So another another issue is, you know, differences in kind of wording that you get across the gospel accounts. So you'll get, you know, uh, for example, at the baptism of Jesus, right at the kind of beginning of his ministry, um, the gospel of Matthew has Jesus uh, baptized by John the Baptist and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Mark and Luke have, you know, the same uh, account there, but they have the wording is slightly different. Uh, Both Mark and Luke say something like, 
you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased or in you I am well pleased. And so we kind of have like a modern Western mindset right. that the difference between this is my beloved son and you are my beloved son somehow means that this never happened. <laughs> right. Like, so we, we, for some reason we look at that slight change in wording and then we jump to the conclusion, well, it must never have happened, which is absolutely absurd. Yeah. It is a big leap. You know, we're like, like think about all the things that are in common there and we're going to, we're going to throw it away because, um, we have a, a modern Western understanding of the use of quotation marks that was different than ancient people. So like, I'm not bothered at all by the slight difference between that, that wording because ancient storytelling, if, if you know anything about ancient uh, history writing, historiography or ancient storytelling, they just did not have the same expectation that, you know, exact quotation marks hmm. uh, imply in our day and age. So, like both of those sentences, this is my beloved son, you are my beloved son. Both of those are translations from another language and they're rendered differently to express different aspects of the same truth that's in them. Right. Um, so the same idea is there and it's brought out differently to emphasize different things that the author wants to emphasize, but the truth is big enough to encompass both of them. And the truth is within it. Um, and both gospel writers are at liberty to, to render the voice from heaven in a way that kind of suits their, uh, their perspective better. So I'm not bothered at all by those sorts of differences, especially when you, when you look at them in the context of ancient storytelling, ancient book writing, ancient, uh, history writing. Mm hmm. So what I'm what I'm hearing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this issue of the inerrancy of Scripture is not is not for the 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 lazy listener. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a topic that takes some 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 work, some effort, some reading, some thinking, um, sort of really exercising uh, you know the muscle uh, of your brain and 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 sort of. Um, you know, really thinking from different angles uh, and, and trying to put yourself even even in the shoes of of maybe the uh, you know first century readers or authors or or that context is that is that true? Yeah, like we we make a lot of our decisions about the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible, and even the relevance of the Bible. We make those decisions using 21st century Hmm. post-enlightenment standards that the gospel writers knew nothing about. And they had absolutely no interest in writing a, you know, a moment-by-moment transcript of Jesus's ministry. They didn't mean to do that. They had no concept of doing that. And if they didn't intend to do that, why would I hold them to that standard? They They have the freedom to rearrange material, to to re-order uh, um, material, to move stories around, to gather them thematically, to condense some, to summarize some, to uh, slow some down, uh, even to translate words of Jesus differently in order to bring out different aspects of the truth that was in them. Um, and that doesn't at all make it untrue. That just shows that they are following the exact 
same methods of storytelling that their historical contemporaries were using. So there's a, another great book, um, but it's called Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? And it's by a scholar named Michael Lacona. That's L-I-C-O-N-A. And he does a really good job of examining the kind of techniques of storytelling and history writing that are contemporary with the Gospels and shows how the things that we see in the Gospels, the four Gospels, are exactly the same sorts of techniques of, you know, reordering material, changing the wording slightly to bring out different aspects of it, uh, as long as they, you know, the, the truth and the, the kernel of that that uh, statement is still there. Really good comparison to help put it in context. That's a confidence booster for sure. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing as you're as you're speaking on this issue, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about is that I'm going to have to increase my book budget. The uh, <laughs> going to have to <laughs> going to have to talk to the wife about the uh, the birthday's coming up, so the the book budget's going to have to grow a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So if you had to sort of, uh, if, if you have more on that third issue, uh, feel free to discuss it. But if you had to sort of uh, bring in this well, to... Let me, let yeah. me jump in. That, I, I want to keep going on that because yeah, I, go for I, it. Heard, I heard recently and like I was watching a YouTube video and a guy was kind of being somewhat antagonistic and he's, you know, saying he's using like a courtroom analogy. And he was saying, you know, if the gospel writers were on the witness stand in a court of law and sure. their testimony, their testimony had any hint of difference or problem with other testimony. They would be thrown out. No one would trust their, their testimony. <laughs> and, and like that seems to have power for some people. And, you know, what do you say to that? Well, my, my response is that's not a good analogy. Let's change the analogy. That's not a good analogy because, um, the gospel writers were never on the witness stand. Uh, they're not being cross-examined for a crime. And so I wouldn't expect them to give that sort of account. Right. But I was listening on the ra- radio the other yeah, that's a great point. couple weeks. This is a couple weeks ago. I was listening on the radio to World War II veterans. And the radio was, they, they had this program where it was like a round table discussion of different World War II vets. And they were just talking about their experience of the war. And they were talking about, you know, um, they, they were in the same battles. They served in some of the same, uh, uh, places at the same times, but they had different tasks. They had different ranks. They had different experiences. They had different reactions to the things that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a much better analogy, I think, for like the four gospels, because when those veterans were talking, of course, they did not give a verbatim account one after the other of all the exact same experience. Like they gave completely different accounts of their experience, but that doesn't call into question the truth of their stories. It actually Hmm. confirmed the truth because what was overlapping in all of their stories was the shared experience of the battle. They experienced it differently, you know, like, one guy would focus on a particular thing in the battle. Another guy would focus on, you know, like his feelings in the battle. Another guy would focus on, you know, a conversation he had, you know. Um, and so they would express things differently. But none of those differences between their emphases, their differences in their experience, or even their attitude towards their experience 
none of those things would lead me to say that's all made up. World War II probably never even happened. You know what I mean? Like you, right. you guys can't even get your stories to agree. Like, no, I mean, as we might expect, the experiences of those veterans would overlap considerably, but have very distinct emphases. But that overlap, that, that kind of shared experience would really serve to confirm not every detail necessarily, but would definitely confirm the overall shape of the narrative. And that's exactly what we see with the four gospels. Like consider what they overlap on. And it's astounding, you know, this shape of Jesus's ministry and who he was, what he said, where he went, what he did, what he claimed, when he died, how he died, when he raised again, uh, like all of that is perfectly coherent. Yeah. I love that analogy. Um, um, so uh, I, I think, I think if people have some sort of analogy to throw at you to say, I, you can't trust the Bible because I wouldn't trust this or that. I would challenge whatever kind of premise they're putting forward, challenge whatever analogy they're using. Don't accept it off the offhand, because if you do accept their analogy, you might find yourself climbing up an, up, an uphill battle, but um, try and think of something else to use. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good one though. I think, I think anyone could, could sort of refer to that um, because it, if anything, it, it, uh, it gives you, it gives you a rich uh, sort of story. You know, you might have someone who's mm, in a mm. helicopter, one who's on the boat at the shore, or someone who, uh, someone who's on the ground. And I mean, why wouldn't you want different perspectives with different feelings and purposes and whatnot? Uh, wouldn't that yeah. be something that enhances the narrative of of that battle or uh, of of that that event, as opposed to exactly. you know? So so maybe it's your attitude as you come to it. Um, you know what 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 you're wanting to do with with the idea of inerrancy you know but i would just feel as though that 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 analogy you did and then and then sort of placing that on the topic that we're speaking on um it would it would just give it uh, a valuable sort of rich narrative as opposed to something that's that that is disagreeable yeah like i would rather have four anchors than one you know yeah exactly um so I, I think that the biggest problem probably for modern people today is that the Bible has miracles in it. Like, I think that's probably the underlying issue for most people. Like they're, you know, no matter what I have said in the past, you know, hour or however long I've been talking, no matter what I've said is going to change someone's mind if they are just opposed to the idea of miracles and the Bible has miracles. So obviously the people writing were gullible and they were, you know, pretty modern and they're stupid and they don't seem to realize right, that this sort of Neanderthal you know, type of. Yeah, exactly. Him. And, and I want to say in response to that, that like, well, think carefully about how miracles are presented because miracles are not presented in the Bible as if they were an everyday occurrence. Like they're not writing about them because they're so gullible that they don't understand that miracles are rare <laughs> Rather, they're writing about miracles because it shocked them to death, right? Like the resurrection of Jesus, to take the biggest miracle uh, in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus was not expected. No one expected him to rise from the dead, and even his disciples couldn't believe it or understand it or expect it. And they wrote about it because it literally turned their world upside down. And so it's not that there are some pre-modern idiots and they don't know that miracles don't happen. They didn't think 
miracles happen until it forced itself upon them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. The, the, it's, it's, yeah, it's not as though they, they expected them to, to occur. I mean, since you even have, you know, some of them doubting and, and wanting, wanting even more evidence uh, in the case, yeah. in the case of the resurrection. That that's right. Yeah. And so the, uh, I'll say one more thing about uh, about the um, the resurrection and miracles. I think, uh, but I've probably gone on long enough here. But I think that um, it's important to focus on the resurrection because if if you come to recognize the resurrection, all the other miracles are are easy. You know, they're easy to to, to accept once you come to a place where you recognize the resurrection. And what's really, really interesting is that there's been a huge change in scholarship in the past couple of decades, even among non-Christian and kind of secular scholarship of historians, is that there's a widespread recognition now that the best explanation, the best explanation of what we find in the text and in history and in all of the sources, including the New Testament sources, the best explanation for all of that is that Jesus really rose from the dead? Hmm. Um, like, there's a, a that's scholar, surprising to me. Oh, it's amazing. There's a scholar named Gary Habermas, H A B E R M A S, I think, and he was a guy that he was a skeptic. He was uh, I'm not sure if he was an atheist, but he definitely was not a Christian. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation basically to demonstrate the rational implausibility of the resurrection. And as he looked at it as a historian, he became converted to Christianity. Such a Lewis And moment. he ended up, oh yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And you can watch his videos on YouTube. It's just absolutely fascinating. And he, what he talks about is kind of how there's been a sea change in uh, historical uh, scholarship now that people who take history seriously and people who take historical sources seriously, whether they're Christians or not, are beginning to come to the point now where they look at the Gospels and say, the best explanation for what we're reading here <laughs> is that Jesus died on a cross. Well, and his they're not wrong. <laughs> and his disciples experienced something, something that we cannot explain. So whether they, they actually admit the his, <clears throat> historicity of the resurrection or not, there is not a better explanation for it. And so that's what I would kind of suggest to be like, you know, uh, check out the resurrection, read the gospel accounts and actually try and come up with a better explanation. Like why couldn't anyone produce Jesus's body? Like why could no one produce his body if he was not really raised from the dead? Why didn't the Roman uh, authorities <laughs> just drag out his body or, why didn't the Jewish authorities just drag out Jesus's body and end all of the, the speculation and all of the early Christian worship of this, uh, of this Jesus guy. And no one could, right? No one could because it wasn't there to pull out of a tomb. It was gone. It was, he was raised. And so, uh, uh I would recommend, you know, watching videos by, uh, Gary Habermas reading his books. Cause he kind of not just gives his own take on it. He talks about how, Kind of this wider scholarly recognition of the, the reliability of the gospel is kind of taking place nowadays. And it's always fascinating to get that perspective from someone who who was against it 
uh, at some point or another, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then somehow through, through some event, uh, has a change, you know, of, of their thought process, but, um, but that's wonderful. Yeah. I th- so, uh, in summary, we have, we have the big picture of scripture. We have Jesus, uh, and his, uh, the way that he considers the, the scriptures. And then we sort of have this, as you said, kind of leaning into with that foundation, we're able to sort of lean into, um, the fine details, the, the small aspects um, using that foundation uh, to mm-hmm. then to then view the inerrancy of scripture through through kind of a more microscopic lens, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that once you kind of cover this ground and you kind of go the direction that I've gone, and when I've gone this way, now I feel in a much better place to affirm inerrancy, not simply as like this blind leap of faith, but as a complex kind of interaction of faith and reason, you know what I mean? Like I love that. it's yeah. a, it's a reasonable faith. It's not, Wedding it's not something that together. I just shot in the dark. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so it is a statement of faith. Like I'm perfectly willing to say that, but it's not in spite of the evidence. It is because of the evidence that I have this faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well that's beautiful. Um, I, I love the way you said that there at the end. So, um, Yep. So today again, uh, we had Dr. Zach Cole. We appreciate all of his time and effort uh, as he's uh, in a completely different uh, area of the world, different time zone. He's getting ready to to eat some dinner with his family, um, uh, but uh, took the time and, and we appreciate it. And hope it's been uh, a blessing to you, to your walk, to um, your efforts with uh, your family, maybe with your children, uh, with your your spouse or, or coworkers or friends, uh, so that you can have some confidence. Uh, maybe read some resources, gain gain some ground in your in the in this area of understanding the text, uh, and uh, moving towards a, a comfortable uh, argument for yourself, uh, considering the inerrancy of Scripture. Thank you for joining us this episode, and remember to send all your questions to questions for Pastor Tim at gmail.com.